Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. This week we watched The World's End. Levi, 30 seconds or less, please give me your review of The World's End. The first post, the old familiar, the famous cock, the cross hands, the good companions, the trusty servant, the two-headed dog, the mermaid, the beehive, the king's head, the hole in the wall, the world's end. That is a, a pub crawl I would love to do. <laughs> I know I want to do it so bad. I wish that I wish we had like the map and we could go and 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 go on the adventure. I just want the map, man. I'm sure you could probably <laughs> get it on like Etsy or something. Um, yeah, man, I, this movie, it, I feel like it really, uh, kind of talks about all those things that were explored in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, but, uh, and, and Scott Pilgrim for that matter, but it brings it all up to the grown up level, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, and awesome performances in this movie. The one that really stood out to me is Nick Frost. Oh yeah. Because... He's such a goober in all the other movies, and in this one, he is the voice of reason. He is uh, the uh, upstanding citizen, and I, I just love seeing him in that role, playing the 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 goody two shoes type of guy. But also, don't cross him because he'll turn into a rugby uh, rugby hooligan in about two seconds. Yeah, when he the transition he makes where he hulks out is fantastic. I really have enjoyed over this because this is our last Edgar Wright for the time being. Yes, it is. I've really enjoyed seeing the range that Nick Frost and Simon Pegg are capable of. They're fantastic actors, and yeah. they've managed to avoid the typecast. Over the over the three, they've managed while they keep kind of their goofy personalities and they can't get rid of their very British looks. They <laughs> they do a great job of of running the gamut of emotion. Yeah, absolutely. I I really like I, you know Simon Pegg is a um Oh, by the way, you can just straight up download the map online. <laughs> just type in <laughs> World's End map and uh there's a bunch of iterations on it. Make it your desktop wallpaper. There you go. If you have a desktop. Um it's pretty cool actually. Uh so yeah, I I do like the range here and I like the I love what Simon Pegg did with his character in this movie, because he's kind of a conglomeration of Ed from the first one, and but he's he's like Ed, like a hyperactive Ed. <laughs> he's Ed with too much motivation. Uh, I guess he's kind of like a, a cross between like if Detective Angel and Ed were were uh, together in one body. I think he's he's Ed coming to terms with what. Because Ed never acknowledges his issues in mm-hmm. Shaun of the Dead. And ultimately, right. he ends up at a zom- is a zombie, and so it does not matter. Yeah. But this is Ed at the end of Shaun of the Dead if he had not, if he had not died. And it's how do you deal with that? How do you enter that next evolution of personality where you realize you've been shit and <laughs> you need to get your shit together. You right. Know, the first step is acknowledging the problem. And I think that acknowledgement haunts, uh, Simon Pegg's character haunts Gary Knight through the whole yeah. movie. Gary King, sir. Gary King. What did I say? Gary Knight. Yes. Gary <laughs> King. 
No, I agree, man. It's it's. Uh, I mean, when you learn that he has tried to commit suicide, it's like because at the beginning of the movie, I think you when he's sitting in the circle, you assume that he's at an AA meeting, or at least I did um, when he's telling the story of the of the pub crawl. But then at the end, when you realize that he was committed for attempted suicide, then you're like, holy shit! Like this just got real. Like he's a. Uh, he, he, you know, he, I think he he's trying to come to grips with the failure of his life, but then he decides that instead of uh, in facing it head on, he's going to revert back to his seventeen year old self. Um, so yeah, man, great range from Simon Pegg in this movie, and I I commend him for writing this role because very much like Ed at the beginning of Shaun of the Dead, uh, not very likable throughout the first. <laughs> <laughs> first 20 minutes of the movie maybe even like the whole movie i mean he's not he's not an incredibly likable person i don't know if you came around on ed but i i don't know if i ever fully did yeah no i it's weird you're you're happy for the the development that the character sees but that yeah. doesn't necessarily make them any more likable they're you know <laughs> they're flawed people so it's not a a crime that you don't necessarily like them but yeah. there are a lot of people in life that you meet and they make poor decisions that usually have a negative effect on your life and that you just learn to deal with it, I think. Yeah, that's that's the them's the rubs, my friend. Is that uh you know, it, you know they always there's always that phrase you don't get to pick your family. Sometimes you don't really get to pick your friends either. It's like <laughs> you know, your friends are just the people who decided to hang out with you at that one point in your life and now it's like 19 years later and and there they are still. <laughs> and that's you get that whenever uh Gary is not in the scene and the other friends mm-hmm. are present. They don't really have much in common. They kind of just catch up. Yeah. And that's it. That's really the only thing that they have in common is a a shared history together that has been absent for was it twenty years? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's the it's so awkward, man. Like those that first pub is so awkward to me. When they all get off the train and then they're all waiting for Gary to show up at the bus or at the train station and he's like an hour late and that he's playing um what a need for speed <laughs> instead of uh instead of moving on like he you know he's just reverted completely back and then they're all like holy shit we're on this ride again but i do really love that beginning you know after the flashback sequence so let's start at the beginning of the movie here the flashback sequence where gary is telling the story of that debaucherous night in 1990 um that that whole scene in in very much Edgar Wright terms, and watching this movie, having watched the first two uh, in the Cornetto trilogy, that whole scene is literally just the whole movie. Like it's the everything that happens in that opening scene when when he's explaining that debaucherous night is repeated once again in the in the New World's End night. So it's the thing of when you're watching these Edgar Wright movies, you're like, okay, this is gonna mean something, so I might as well pay attention because it's the same thing that happened at the beginning of Shaun of the Dead. When, um, you know, every time that he uh, talks about, you know, we're going to go out to uh, his girlfriend's house and we're going to go swing by mom's and then we're going to go ahead to the pub. Like it's all everything, everything in that sequence happens. It just happens a little bit differently the second or when it's actually realized. So that Edgar Wrightism starts off right at the beginning of the movie. I I don't know if you read Davy Mack in the forums 
list posted a link to a really long essay mm-hmm. um from film critic hulk and if you yeah. can get over the <laughs> fact that this asshole writes in all caps uh-huh when you can get past that dippy little mechanism it's a really good essay to read but the i want to lift the word that he uses for that he calls it synchronicity mm-hmm. throughout the movie because there's all these patterns and I think it's fantastic. It's a really good word for it because it things circle back. And this one is. And not just is there the story that they tell at the start that the movie then follows. The movie ends with uh, – uh, I'm trying to think of what Nick Frost's character's name what was. Name Andy. Andy. Andy is telling the story of that uh-huh. night. When the apocalypse occurs, totally to a in group a circle, of people. and so it, the way these things come back up is Edgar Wright. It makes it's such a fantastic writing mechanism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, in some ways it's so obvious. It's like, yeah, let's just bookend the movie, uh, you know, the same way that that you start the movie. But it, I did, I did totally that went right over my head of the way that Nick Frost is telling the story in the circle, the same way that Gary was telling the uh, the the story in the circle at the beginning of the movie. And there's so many different things that, that fall in line with that. There's, um, you know, at the end of the night, uh, at the end of the pub crawl in 1990, they sit there and they watch the sunrise. Uh, and that's kind of, uh, that's that, that that's the beacon of the end of the story. And then at the end of this story, they go to a pub. And what's the name of the pub? The Sunrise. <laughs> Or the uh, oh, I it was the, that. I think it was the shining sun. I wrote it down here. The rising, the rising sun. sun. Yeah, the rising sun. So it's like the movie, you know, starts at the end of the story is is at is at the sunrise, and then the last pub that he goes to is the rising sun. So yeah, man, you're right. That synchronicity. It's so Edgar Wrighty, and I feel like having watched Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz in quick sequence, that I was able to understand right at the beginning like all of the little things that are going to be coming up later um (laughs) yeah like uh uh, there's well there's it's interesting like at the beginning when they're all getting together um he says like one of them says he'll outlive us all talking talking about gary and you know he doesn't outlive all of them but he does outlive a few of them um and i feel like i think that was martin freeman's character who said that and he does outlive martin freeman's character uh yeah, but also all of the little isms that Gary has at the beginning of this movie. He is the quip master. And it gets to the point where it's almost too much quippiness. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing. He's supposed to be annoying. So it works in that in that regard. And you can see how that would have worked when they were younger. That those quips mm-hmm. were great stuff. Because your sense of humor is so much simpler. And... <laughs> Yeah, it, the movie has just strikes the theme of this transition to adulthood, the difficulty of the transition, yeah, the the issue, the the responsibilities that come with it, and the various ways that people manage it, and they wrap this sci-fi story around it. <laughs> it yeah, I want to get to the alien lord, much like Shaun of the Dead, uh, the alien lord in this movie is is very unique and interesting in a way that I don't think has been covered in a lot of other sci-fi movies. So I definitely want to get to that as well. 
Um, but some of the things that actually made me laugh out loud at the beginning of the movie when Gary was talking to people, I love the Doctor Inc. I have to, I, uh, Martin Freeman's character says I have to go see the doctor, and he's like, "Yeah, Doctor Inc." Dr. Ink. And he's like, yeah, drink. I get it. It's it's the drink. Um, I also love the when he's talking to Nick Frost character, Andy. Uh, he goes, he goes, don't you remember the Fridays? And and Andy goes, yes, but I also remember the Mondays. <laughs> and then Gary goes, yeah, that's why we're going out on Friday, uh, which I really love. Um, and then the funniest one to me was when they're in the, in the Beast and Peter's like, hey, I made you a tape with this song on it. And he's like, yeah, it's right here. And he goes, where did you find that? And he goes, it's in the tape player. <laughs> like, it's been in the tape player in The Beast uh, for 20, 20 plus years. Um, I just love all those little quips because they're, you know, they're dad jokes, but they work in this regard. I like that. I also really enjoy there's the quick writing. And the more interviews I watch with uh, Edgar Wright, the more I just have such a profound respect for the ability to keep such a tight script because they rehearse and that's when they do their, that's when you can freestyle. But once it's on the page and once you're on set, that's it. You're doing it per the script. And it really allows them to be so tight with the responses to the joke and the timing. The comedic timing is so solid. The yeah. When they're in the car and they're talking about the three musketeers and one of them goes, well, actually, it's four musketeers. And then somebody else jumps in and it's like, oh, you know, it's a fiction, right? And he goes, oh, they're saying that about the Bible. That was written by Alexander Dumas. Just the the lightning fast back and forth yeah. with the jokes is – it's fantastic editing. And I think it comes mm-hmm. down to just their ability to shoot – so concisely what they want they have such a, a specific vision going into these movies that well it's a rock it's a rock solid script i mean this this is it stands apart in the face of modern comedy because this is a rock solid script from start to finish there's no the, the improv isn't there and that and so all of that work that's gone into the preciseness of the joke over time it allows you to do callbacks throughout the movie it allows you to do callbacks within a scene it allows that snappy dialogue to layer on the jokes like an ice cream sandwich it's so good i also love the alexander dumas reference because i uh you know i'm sure you know the three musketeers i'm not sure if it was a direct reference but the thing that it reminded me of was jago unchained uh when he when he was talking to uh when schultz was talking to candy about alexander dumas so, I don't know if I know that Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino are friends. So I think they lived together for a while. <laughs> really? Yeah, I think I read Rubies. that somewhere. I don't know what the what the reasoning was behind it, but it just was a little fact that jumped out. They should. Oh man, they should have filmed that as a reality show. <laughs> it's probably just them watching movies. <laughs> a lot of movies. Just watching movies every day. I would totally watch that show, though, just watching Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino watch movies together. It's kind of a mystery science theater yeah. style. Like, what, they, what, what pops out to them? Um, <laughs> also, uh, I don't know if you noticed in this movie, but what a hallmark of this movie is person wipes, is what I'm calling them. Where they do <laughs> a wipe transition between scenes, but they put a person walking uh, in front of that transition, which I thought... Probably had two things. One, it it makes the scene feel, in my opinion, a little bit more claustrophobic. In that, you know, 
uh, as the end of the movie is kind of all of these alien creatures close in on people that uh, that you know it, it makes you think that these people are kind of shambling around in the background the whole time um, but it, like oddly like a person wipe is one thing that you can use in an improv scene if you want to take two cuts of the same line you can do a a wipe and then just put a person like on a green screen in front of the wipe and it looks like somebody just walked in front of the scene but you actually did a cut mid scene so maybe it's like a uh, a slight nod to the to the comedies that use that as a device to put improv on the screen that like no we don't need to actually use it to cut uh the same scene we're going to use it to cut in between scenes they, maybe maybe I'm reading too much into that but that's that's my own personal canon on that well they Edgar Wright really loves the the dynamic transition he doesn't do mm-hmm. a lot of hard cuts if he can help it. It seems like there's always a motion in the direction of the transition that makes it feel more seamless. I did notice the the people wipes. It gives it a an interesting flavor if you if you start to really pay attention to it. Um, yeah, just due to its rarity, or so it seems. <laughs> well, the other thing is that Newton Haven. It also explores the thing that it was explored in both Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz in that, like, this, the neighborhood, the small town, and the country, the English countryside. Now, Shaun of the Dead, I feel like that took place in a suburb of London. I feel like it was a little closer to the city, but I'm not sure. Well, you need the body yeah. count for zombies. What's that? You need the body count for zombies. Yeah, you do. That's true. Uh, but this, you know, it... This movie kind of tackles that idea of like the idealistic small village in a different way. Like in in the Hot Fuzz, it was all about the conspiracy uh, laid laid forth by the town council, and in this one, it's it's uh, a little bit more celestial in in its origin. So I I, I like that there's some exploration to tying this Cornetto trilogy together of like the small neighborhood or the small the small uh the small setting it helps to to kind of cage it in and it allows this genre film to take place in in almost a little zoo exhibit that we can all kind of look in on which i really like that's um, the the small hamlet is mm-hmm. is the british version of the the texas way stop that is deserted for <laughs> like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Hills Have yeah. Eyes. that And that I pulled from an interview where they were, I think it was for Hot Fuzz. They said specifically that, oh, those tiny towns are creepy because they're so manicured that it seems unnatural. Right. And I think it's such a, a deep well that they can go back and draw from in yeah. any of these instances where it's, it's them versus conformity because those yeah. take such a, a stark approach to rules to, of design and aesthetics. And architecturally, it's one of those things that makes your skin crawl when you see <laughs> design guidelines for an area that are so specific that it does a lot of the aesthetic design for you. That stuff is scary yeah. because it's usually written by people who do not have good taste. <laughs> Any design sense at all. Yeah, well, and it's an interesting thing, too, of this generation of British people that, that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg are a part of. 
you know, the stiff upper lip generation extends pretty far, I think, in Britain. And Britain has such a uh, long-standing history. I mean, they, you know, there's there's debate out there as to whether King Arthur was an actual real person or not. But they, I mean, they they re- they reference Arthurian legend in this, like having a country go back thousands of years. You know, it 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 instills a tradition that you just don't get in the United States. It's like in the U.S., you're you're talking about the truck stop, or which usually is was once part of a boom town that came and went in the 1800s, you know, and that's about it. That's the extended history. And if you really want to make it creepy, you say it was, uh, you know, founded on an Indian burial, burial ground or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, in this British history, it's like this long tradition. And then, and then this idea of, of, you know, breaking out of that conformity and that conformity stretching back centuries, you know, I think that there's an interesting aspect to that as well. Um, but I also like the way that the genre film plays against it in all of these movies. I think that that is – it's a good way to use that familiar, established, traditional setting and then throw something completely juxtaposed on top of it, which I really like. What um, does – what do you think Edgar Wright has against teens? Because this is the <laughs> second movie where he showed a small group of teens yeah. with little to no emotion and they're – treated similar to piranha that they move in a pack they attack in a pack it happens in hot fuzz where they're sitting on like the fountain and simon pig uh uses them to attack one of the ladies in the end by and he Uh gives them this the spray paint and then in this one there's the creepy kids that turn out to be robots i feel like he has something against packs of teens well, I I think that it, part of that is that uncomfortable feeling of now you're not young anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think we've all had that moment where we're like, oh, I I don't get the younger generation now. For me, it was Snapchat. Like, I don't get Snapchat. <laughs> don't understand it. I, you know, I I I was I was a guinea pig in Facebook. Like, Facebook came out my freshman year of college, so that was like, you know, Facebook. I get Twitter. I get. Uh, Snapchat. I just don't understand. And now, now I'm out of touch. Like it's that it's that moment that you're out of touch. And then once you're out of touch, I think you look at that younger generation of teenagers, and you're like, I have I have no reference point for you. I I don't understand. And now I'm now I'm on my way to becoming old, which sucks. Uh, so maybe it's part of that. It's like you don't understand the younger generation once you're out of it. Um. And so they just become a, a, a herd of mindless freaks, which uh, <laughs> it's pretty awesome Poignant. in some regard. You know, it's that thing of like, man, I'm 30. It's like, geez, now I'm I'm officially not a young person anymore. <laughs> Dealing with that, I think, is something that you have to come to grips with when you when you reach that age. And you know, Sean's 29 in Shaun of the Dead, so he's he's gotten to that point as well. Um, yeah, but totally. The the ones though the the kids in this one they look exactly like the kids in um, Kingsman the Secret Service like the way that they dressed and everything. I think that's how I've, British teens dress. Yeah, but they're like the hooligans though, right? They're not like the posh teens. Like, I don't I feel know like the difference. <laughs> I, I all I'm trying to say here is that they were well they were well dressed in my regard, and I feel like uh, even the grungy British teens like look a lot. better. <laughs> Better than the are dressed a lot better than the uh, than the grungy American teens. 
there's still a, there's still an air of that stiff upper lip that that finds its way through the generation, even with the hooligans. That's a, I there's a a culture gap. I'm sure that we're we're missing. We're we're yeah. seeing it, but looking into the gap, it's it's all voodoo. I don't know. <laughs> no, we're talking about no teens idea. in a culture that we don't <laughs> exist. We don't <laughs> live in. Yeah. So now we're ta- we're two degrees of separation from relating. Yeah, talk about aliens from outer space, man. That's it. It illustrates the point pretty well for for us, at least. <laughs> like just completely out of left field. Um, hey, what do you say we go on this on this pub crawl here? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, so Davy Mack in that in that review from the Hulk, I read it after I watched the movie, and. Uh, and in it, he runs down the meaning of all of the pubs, and but I had already actually already done that before I read the article, and some of mine jive with his, and some of mine don't. So I want to talk through them. And Davy Mack also uh, put a couple in that he that he the meanings of the pubs that that he wanted to put in there. But it's one of the Edgar Wrightisms. It's like okay, we're gonna have a list of things, and they're all gonna have names. So those are gonna have some kind of thematic element onto the add some kind of thematic element onto the um onto the film in the like it's not it's not like they just threw 12 names out there in the writing they actually wrote first they named second they chose the names based on the scene that they had already written yeah i i think you it had to have been that way because they are so (laughs) they're so spot on uh, Spot on. Yeah, completely through. So the first one is the first post. And this is the first one. So that's probably what's called the first post. Um, but I, I do love it in this scene when when we get to see uh, how Nick Frost's character is no no longer drinking. <laughs> and the, the that Edgar Wright is of, of the slam bang uh, jump cut montage for with all of with all the four beers, uh, you know, filling up, and then the water, like filling up. So, I love how that that characterization comes through really strongly, and it's a great way to introduce the character. It's not like, oh, I don't drink. It's saying I'll have five beers. Uh, actually, make that four beers in a water, and then, and then you see. And then you cut to Nick Frost drinking the water, and through the bottom of the glass, you could see Gary um, glaring at him. Like, just such good characterization here. The other thing I want to talk about is these are imperial pints. So, <laughs> what does that mean? An imperial pint is 20 ounces, American pints are 16 ounces. Oh, really? Yes. So, that's, so that's over 12, that's like three additional beers. So, you're talking yeah. 15 beers now? Yeah, it's it's uh so if you're doing this pub crawl in American pints, you would drink 192 ounces of beer. If you were doing this in British pints, you'd be drinking 240 ounces of beer. <laughs> so yeah, that's that equates to uh to what three yeah three extra beers, uh, three extra American beers. So yeah, 15 beers. You did the math a little bit faster. Right? <laughs> Congratulations. I didn't do the conversion. I did the fractions. Yeah. <laughs> math on direct. But that's the thing, man. Like, that that idea destroys me. And I'm 30. Like, if I were, if I were pushing 40 and I were doing this pub crawl, I 
don't think my liver can handle it, man. That's that's you a know, lot I had of this beer. Experience for my thirtieth birthday. I basically went back to <laughs> grad school and I had several beers and more shots than I've done probably combined in the last five years. <laughs> And it was the worst experience of my life. And that was when I realized, I'm 30. I don't need to do this anymore. I'm good. Yeah, I had a I had a recent hangover that lasted a full day. Full 24 hours. And then I was like, that's it. <laughs> that's that. That one is, uh, that one's done, man. And like, yeah, when Gary introduces the shots, we're not at that pub yet, but I was just like, no, no way. Although they do do a great job in this movie of acting drunk, especially Nick Frost. Like, if you want somebody to act wasted, Nick Frost is your man. He's got that down pat, which I really appreciated. Yeah, the rugby look really reinforces, <laughs> at least to an American audience, that he is a heavy drinker and capable of some destruction. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah. the increase of the the acting in terms of drunkenness over the course of the movie is pretty subtle and pretty good it is man and the, yeah the progression is great i mean uh and that's just good directing it's like you have to be able to get your actors in the space i'm sure this thing wasn't shot in sequence where they know exactly how drunk they have to be throughout the night um because yeah andy peaks at uh at uh, i think the beehive is where he peaks in drunkenness but then he also starts to sober up toward the end but he's still not completely sober um yeah it's just great i love it uh so anyway we got the first post they're, they're starting on their imperial pint journey and then we go to the old familiar and there's a couple things here uh so the old familiar it's it's a repeat of the first bar it's literally been very familiar <laughs> Yeah, very familiar because it's exactly the same as the first one, but also at the old familiar is where we meet, uh, where we meet um, Martin Freeman's sister's character, if I could remember any of their names at all. Um, so it's his name was O Man. Which <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's an inside joke uh, between Oliver and, but uh, I mean between Levi and I and a guy named O Man that we grew up with, which I think was really funny. Rosamund Pike, that's who I was trying to remember. Yeah, Gone Girl. Rosamund Pike. Herself. Gone Girl, man. Gone Girl herself. Do not cross her. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but they but they meet up, and, they, and she is Gary's old familiar, because they had their little bathroom rendezvous back in 1990. They have a almost bathroom rendezvous in this movie, but it, uh, it's much more ill-conceived and... Uh, I would say a better outcome, probably, for all involved. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, Sam is her character's name. So they, I think there's there's two correlations here, because we repeat the bar, it's familiar, and then we catch up with the old familiar, and that's Sam. Um, and then we go to the famous cock, and I love this one because <laughs> Gary is the famous cock. <laughs> he, he gets immediately thrown out of the bar, which I just really enjoyed. Um, they do a good job moving through the 12 at a decent rate. Some are, yeah. they spend more time than others, but I was trying to remember at the beginning of the film, how do we go through 12 bars? It doesn't feel like that. <laughs> That's because you get ones like the famous cock where they turn around and they're right out. Yeah. But I also really enjoy how, um, 
how they start to like this the the band starts to fall apart at this point like it started to come to grips with all of these guys that this is a bad idea they shouldn't have come out here and by the time they get to the famous cock like the awkwardness has reached fever pitch uh and they're they're all just like why why are we doing this why are we even doing this at all uh and then that's when they get to the cross hands and the cross hands i think is plot point one in this movie it's it's the point of no return. It's the point when things start to shift. Um, so that's when we get the fight in the bathroom. But it's also the point where uh, Andy discovers that Gary's mom is not actually dead. And he he's not too pleased with that realization at all. Um, so that happens. And then at the end, it's also the point where... where and- it's also the place where Andy starts to... Uh, or gets back on the, is it back on the wagon or off no, the wagon off the wagon yeah he gets back off the wagon and just chugs those five those five uh shot glasses but it's this, at this point in the movie when they're like screw it man we're we're done we're going to go back to we're going to go back to london we're uh this was ill conceived and then and then it and then everything it's the cross point it's just the crossroads where uh where the where the night takes a turn and and jettisons forward after the battle with the blue robot children and if you haven't seen the previews up to this point this has yeah. got to be a huge surprise because <laughs> there's Absolutely. no real reference to any of this it happens so no. quickly yeah and it's the great it's i was noticing during this scene it's such a good confluence of things we see mm-hmm. uh was it Pete, uh, yeah, yeah Pete. Pete. You know the bully thing, and he emotionally opens up to his old friends, and mm-hmm. we see immediately that Gary has no interest in this. Yeah, and that's kind of the cutoff point for that relationship. And then we find out about about the mom. So now we see that it's he's actively lying, and that's yeah. the kind of the great thing about the film crit Hulk is the discussion about the alcoholism in the movie. And I don't know that uh-huh. we have a ton of experience in that realm. So I recommend everybody go read the article. It's it. Well, what does it say? Cause I didn't read the article. I read the highlights. The article discusses the movie through the film, through the lens of alcoholism. So mm-hmm. if you look at how Gary's character reacts, so one that it sets, the article sets up that the robots are not, uh, imagery for conformity mm-hmm. they are really blanks and they are so you project the character's issues on them the bully uh the lust of the marmalade sandwich and for gary it is his issues with drinking is really what's projecting and so getting all the way through the film the end of the film, his rejection of the robots, his ideal is him coming to terms with his alcoholism. But if you look through the film, his entire motivation is to keep drinking, despite the fact that the world is coming down around him. And that's right. the the real – that's why the movie, I think, feels awkward for a lot of people is it's really realistic in the sense of he – does so much and he lies to himself and it's so obvious as the viewer the lengths at which he's going through and we see that as a nostalgia trip at first but Mm -hmm. really when 
you get to this point when he basically rejects his friends emotionally, he does not care. That's where it really becomes obvious. This is an excuse for him to drink. Yeah, and it's and also as as the movie goes on, Andy's character more and more tells him that he needs to stop drinking. Like <laughs> he needs to stop put the pint down. And uh and yeah, he's getting messages from all over the place that he needs to stop and then all of a sudden he his world literally blows up. <laughs> and uh and then he I, I guess you could definitely consider that rock bottom. I mean, they're literally under the ground when <laughs> when he reaches his final uh, you know that that final stage of it. So yeah, totally. I didn't even read into that at, at that point, but it is. It's a spiral downward throughout the entire movie. Um, absolutely. So yeah, the cross hands. You know, for me, it's the crossroads. Like this is where uh where the movie takes the turn. We we learn a lot more about all the characters, and and the guys go from leaving and going to London to reverting back to drinking to uh to going on this quest and and defeating some robots and wondering whether they lost their minds and then ascent, and then and then heading out to the good companions uh and again uh, the choreography Edgar Wright's yeah. choreography is so spot on right I was watching I actually watched the Kingsman yesterday. And mm-hmm. I was so happy to see a similar, just long takes in the fights where a lot of it's done by the actors. Yeah. Not a lot of fast. Cause I've also watched Batman uh, on Friday night and there's so many fast cuts in that, that you don't really see the action. And I really just am tired of that. I like seeing the full fight and Edgar Wright gives me that every time. Well, and I'm fairly certain that, yeah, that he is the he was the stunt the same stunt coordinator on the Kingsman did this movie. That's not surprising. That's fantastic. Yeah. So the guy's name is Brad Allen, uh, stunt coordinator for the Kingsman Secret Service, The World's End, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, um, Mars Needs Moms. I guess I have to watch uh, Mars Needs Mom now. <laughs> uh, Kickass, Kickass, same same guy. Um, so yeah, he's. He's uh oh he he did a lot of Jackie Chan movies Rush Hour uh, Rush Hour Two Shanghai Nights but yeah it's the same guy and the stunt I mean the the fight sequences in this movie are just awesome uh they definitely uh they they go up in awesomeness uh and they do a great job of peaking uh of peaking at the at the beehive because. The first fight scene sequence here in the bathroom, it's it's good, it's interesting, and it's cool kinda cool to see these guys in like more of a brawly sense, just trying to survive. And then the second fight, uh, you know, Gary gets a little bit more um confidence as he fights the twins at the two headed dog, and then once we get to the beehive and it's the all out brawl, God that fight sequence is amazing. It's so good. There's and the way that they're able to instill character motivation in that fight sequence is so good. So, um, so yeah, uh, Brad Allen is the guy. Uh, so good on Brad Allen. And I love that their fight style is like wrestling moves. They're just whole hog yeah. ripping off like W. I was watching with Liz. I went, "That's the rock bottom. That was the rock bottom. I know this move." <laughs> and in an interview, they they actively said that they chose that because what else would these characters have? Right. Learn where would they have learned fighting other than watching wrestling on TV? And it's such yeah. a nice. 
uh, take. It's such a <laughs> so poignant to put that character motivation into how they fight because otherwise it doesn't make sense. How would these forty year olds have any concept of brawling? Yeah. Bar. Well, that's all they would know. They would they wouldn't they wouldn't be trained fighters. They do a great job of having engaging fight sequences with people who aren't good fighters. And and they did that I think one of the ways that they do that is they make the robots not very good fighters either. Like the robots all they're trying to do is put their is get their hands on your head. That's like their only move. So the more that you can try to uh to to thwart them in that pursuit, the the better off you'll be. Um, so we go to the cross hands and then from there we go on to the good companions. This is really great because, uh, in this, this is really where they become the team where they realize that it's us, that it's them versus the world. Um, and they kind of just go in, they get their drinks together and then they leave. So, uh, I, I really, I like that scene as, as, as they, uh, as they kind of codify as a group because they were so when they entered the the crosshands they just had nothing going on and when they enter the good companions they are now a crew a crew of fighters or a crew of something <laughs> and then the next one's a trusty servant that's where we run into reverend green who is himself the trusty servant which uh which is pretty great this is also where oh man becomes a robot yeah um just vanish yeah, so it's it's definitely got a double meaning there because you got Reverend Green who is who was the trusty servant as the pot dealer, and then you have O Man who becomes a trusty servant of the robots at this bar, which I thought was pretty good. Um, even though they try, they keep on saying, you know, they're not slaves. The these robots are not slaves, and this is where they start iterating that line that robot means slave, um, which. Uh, which I keep on wanting to telling people they're they're not slaves they're just uh they're just their their happy selves and I enjoyed the the we could take a moment to talk about the alien mythology here the mm-hmm. the notion that they're only replacing who they absolutely have to and they're trying to bring <laughs> humans up to the level of the universe right uh, what do you think of this it's a it's a not an outright evil motivation. No, but few things are. I mean, few people are like, I'm going to set out to be the most evil thing of all time. But most of the time, that evilness manifests itself in the tamping down of freedoms in this world. I mean, that's basically what makes you the most evil person. The more that you tamp down on personal freedoms, the the worse you are. Um, so, you know, most pursuits are, are noble, or are noble in the eyes of the pursuer. Uh, it's, but you know, it that doesn't matter. It's it's futile to to say, well, it had good intentions if something horrible was the result. Um, but I do like the fact that I, I I love that alien theory that like aliens haven't come or they have come and they saw what we were like and they're like these guys can't handle being a part of a galactic civilization. I just love <laughs> I love that idea. Not that I'm like a big. Uh, big believer in aliens but uh but i love the idea that like we we just aren't ready to become a part of a galactic like if a giant ufo shows up we're gonna try to shoot a nuke at it then they're gonna be like peace out guys (laughs) you guys are not ready for this uh i find it super believable (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> it's understandable. I mean, and that's basically what the entire premise of this movie is in terms of the alien infestation is that it's uh it's it's that we just are so bad as we just cannot function in a galactic sense. We would be the we would be the dirty stepchildren. We 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 just can't uh we just can't be a part of the society quite yet. And maybe they'll have to wait a couple thousand years for us to get there. Um, we're just evolved from wild animals. Deal with we it. We just want to be free to do what we want. <laughs> Any old loaded. time. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so then we go from the trusty servant to the two-headed dog. This is where we fight the two-headed dog in the face of the twins. Another really great fight. I love it when the legs get attached to the arms. <laughs> I'm like, these guys, so creative. I don't... And we could talk about the alien design a little bit too. Like, what are they made out of? Are they made out of ink? They've got they're ink made on out their of hands. ink. <laughs> I get that, but I love how they like plug into each other like Barbies. Like you could pull out or like action figures, you could just pull out their arms and legs. I did that a lot with my sister's Barbies as a kid. Just a lot of leg <laughs> really, yanking out. You know, it did seem shocking how easy they could pull heads off, but it didn't necessarily yeah. stop them. So. It was a pretty good mechanism. I think it made for interesting fights. It made it a little bit different from zombies. They have to walk that line. Right. Whenever you come up against an enemy that is a horde, in a sense, I think the movies, I think Avengers is going to have this problem forever. It's the only thing that they can think to throw at the good guys (laughs) is just more bad guys. And it gets really dull. So I enjoyed the notion that one, you kill it and it's not really down and out and two that by putting the legs on the robot it it's funny because it's just different we get out of you know three major fights we get a a solidly different fight with each time each type each fight has its own own unique um flavor which is great almost like a cornetto trilogy oh my god uh (laughs) <laughs> Another thing that I really like in this one, though, is that um, so they recreate the story from the beginning, and that Sam and Gary go into the disabled uh, bathroom um, <laughs> together in the in this in this uh, pub. But the other thing that I really like is that when they're in there, and this might have another like two headed dog or double type of thing going on, they do a shot which is very. It's. I feel like it's a psychologically unnerving shot, but you don't notice it as the viewer. In that, they shoot them head-on with a mirror behind them, so that you can see their reflections in the mirror. But, they do it in a way that if you were actually shooting that straight on, you would see the camera, because the camera would also be dead set in the middle of the mirror. <laughs> so there must have been some kind of either visual effect or special effect to take the camera out of that scene and still have them still be able to shoot directly into a mirror. And I feel like that gives you uneasiness as a viewer because, uh, because in your mind's eye, you're like the camera should be there in the mirror or we should be there in the mirror. It's weird for a human to be staring directly into the mirror and not see themselves in it. This is a hint. Um, Their next movie is going to be a vampire movie. Yeah, maybe. maybe the viewer is the vampire, yeah. <laughs> so I just thought that was really cool. Like I noticed that and I was like, wait a second. I We should see the camera in the mirror here and we don't. Um, and it allows us to be a little bit uneasy as they display another double at the two-headed uh, dog. 
So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, then we go to the mermaid, and of course the mermaid is full of the sirens, which is uh, which is uh, the the marble the marmalade sandwich trying to get the um, trying to get the DNA off the dudes, uh, which I thought <laughs> that was pretty great. This is also where we get to see Basil or Basil and his crazy straw, which is easily one of my favorite parts. Of this movie. It's not so crazy, is it? <laughs> I love Basil so much. It's just so wonderful how the town loon like decides that he uh there is actually the only sane one in the entire place. I'm trying to think of that actor's name. He does such cuz he was fantastic in Hot Fuzz too cuz you couldn't oh, understand yeah. him and he had the <laughs> all the guns. Yep. Oh, I also did you end up watching Spaced? I've seen clips just on YouTube. Okay, have you seen Brian? He's like their creepy neighbor. No, guy. I have not. He's got like the long hair. He's a painter. He paints and screams. That's like one of his media. <laughs> anyway, I nope. um, <laughs> haven't seen that. <laughs> it's great because it, that actor, Mark Heap, was actually, I meant to mention it, but he was the bartender at the, uh, at the two-headed dog. So that's a great uh, little Edgar Wright callback there as well. Um, so yeah, we go to the disco. I also love when they come out of the disco and they show the disco poster. All of the kids in the disco poster look like zombies with like, they're like blue zombies with shining bright eyes. So I thought that was really cool. I think I missed um, that. Yeah, on the poster, there's like, it's like disco whatever on the poster. Um, disco school is what it is. <laughs> then we go to the beehive and this is where we encounter the hive mind. And join us, or you know, you're either with us or against us. And this is where we get Pierce Brosnan. He does a fantastic job. Yes, and it made me wish so much, so much that Roger Moore had played Sean's dad in Shaun of the Dead, because then we could have gotten a James Bond in each of these movies. But there's no James Bond in Shaun of the Dead. But we got Timothy Dalton in Hot Fuzz, and then we got Pierce Brosnan in The World's End. Well, maybe they so. can get Daniel Craig for the next one with the vampire <laughs> film. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, this is the fight scene, man, at the Beehive. This is like the fight scene in the movie. I love it. Uh in terms of the the choreography, like I love how Sean is tr- or Sean, uh Gary is trying to get his beer and he just can't quite get his lips to the glass because he keeps getting thwarted and punched in the face or bumped and his beer spills all over the place. So, uh that on top of seeing Nick Frost go off with a, with a pair of bar stools, just punching <laughs> everybody, going full Hulk smash, which is also a callback to the first uh, first story of 1990. It's the same exact fight at the same exact bar. Um, so great. And then after they leave, we get our fence shot. And the thing that I love about the fence shot is that it's like a it's like a conglomeration of the first two uh, movies. In that the first time that Gary tries to scale the fence, it just falls over. Um, and then the second time, uh, he like flips over it like he did in Hot Fuzz. So I was I was a big fan of the uh, of the fence in this movie. The, the callback to the fence. Yeah, the, um, I enjoy the indulgences they take, mm-hmm. and they don't take too many. I think the the referencing old material callbacks between the movies but the fence is fantastic and they also do it with um there's an arcade machine that shows up in all of them they ran by it i don't remember which scene where they run by 
But you I hear believe it. it's at the king's head because it, it was closed. I, I believe it's oh, at that's the right, king's head. Oh, right, and the head. lights are all off. And yeah, but it makes a little noise up. when they run by. Yeah. It goes, do 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 Yeah, totally. And that's the famous arcade machine that Ed turns on at the at the Winchester when they're uh, surrounded by zombies, which is awesome. Yeah, and it's also in the pub in Hot Fuzz. Yeah. The, the end of- oh, that's the one that he pees on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that the refrigerator. By the way, I didn't realize this until I listened back to the podcast. I just want to do this callback to the Hot Fuzz. The In Hot Fuzz, they refer to the guy as a refrigerator magnate, which is a refrigerator magnate. <laughs> And I just like I I said that like three times on the podcast. I never got it <laughs> that it's a refrigerator magnet, which is hilarious. Um, all right, then we go to the king's head. Uh, Gary's actually unconscious when he gets into the king's head uh, because he's been knocked out by Andy. Um, so we get there. Uh, between those two, we do go out to the lawn bowling club, and we get a scene where uh, basically Gary. <laughs> Gary tells them all that they have to show them their scars to prove that they're not blanks, but all of those scars are caused by Gary. So he's scarred them for <laughs> scarred them for life, quite literally in in every regard. Well, and even when we find out his, you know, the scars he's not showing are self inflicted. Yeah, we get to absolutely. The world's end. It's really. That was a really great moment. I remember from the first time seeing it. This time I. It felt like I saw it coming a mile away when he wouldn't pull up his sleeves. But yeah. the first time I saw this, I thought it was such a cool. It seems like he's just trying to prove something. You know, he doesn't want to show. <laughs> you buy that by his personality, he doesn't feel a need to show his scars yeah. that he is able to explain himself freely. And well, uh, I I I thought he was covering something up, but I went straight to like uh you know track marks from like heroin use or something on his arm that's what that's where i was going with it but not quite that dark not not quite requiem for a dream territory oh man yeah (laughs) uh let's never do that movie please i've seen it once i I don't need to see it again i think aronofsky could be a very interesting director to do anyway <laughs> now there's going to be a camp, an Aronofsky camp, to make Levi watch Requiem for a Dream. I watched that um, with my dad. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. <laughs> I'd love to see a movie poster about Levi watching movies. And the Requiem for a Dream, what the little critic note, footnote will be, I watched it with my dad. And it's just a shot of you and your dad watching the movie. And your dad just has like his arms crossed and a confused look on his face, and you were like, "You've got like your head in your hands." He really didn't know why I wanted to watch that movie. <laughs> He's like, "What?" <laughs> Sorry, uh, segue. Yeah. Then we go to the hole in the wall pub, and this is where Stephen punches a hole in the wall with the beast. He also gets dragged out, very similarly to what happened in Shaun of the Dead. Um, gets dragged out by the giant modern art piece, <laughs> uh, and then we finally get to the worlds. And the end of the world, where the end of the world actually happens. So I, you know, just great. I love the way that all of these, that all of these um, pubs uh, kind of illustrate and thematically go 
uh, along with it. And it's a great thing about Edgar Wright because you like, okay, none of, nothing's going to be wasted here. If he's going to name something, he's going to name it for a reason. Um, and other pretty great things here, like after, uh, after the world does end, um, you know, there's a callback to a line that Andy had where he said, you know, we're trying to go organic, but I, you know, I love processed foods too much. And then at the end, they use that to say we all had to go organic in a big way. And I actually didn't, uh, I didn't miss processed foods, uh, that much. And then we see the Cornetto wrapper because that's the only time we see that Cornetto in the Cornetto trilogy, but it's got to get in there somehow. Which I love because if you're looking for it, you're like itching for it. Like, where is it? Why haven't they stopped by, uh, you know, a, a convenience store and grabbed a Cornetto yet? And and we get just the wrapper at the end of the movie, which I thought was great. I don't know why they made the alien blood blue and not green for the Cornetto. Because the Cornetto is green because aliens. But it seems like <laughs> it's just one step more. I'm curious as to why the blue. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I like the blue because it's, uh, I don't know, actually. It's it's interesting because Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead actually have quite a bit of red in them. Um, but yeah, the, the blue is an interesting choice. Uh, the only thing I could think of is, you know, it, it looks like ink. And he says, you know, we've got ink on us. And the whole time they've been, you know, at the very beginning of the movie, there's Dr. Ink. Um, maybe there's a correlation or, or a callback there. It's also Not just sure. a starker color. Green, I think, is maybe too on the nose. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe too on the nose. And yeah, blue is probably easier to see on film, actually. Because green would just kind of look like slime. Like, blue looks like something mechanical, you know? Yeah. That's a really... It makes them... Yeah. Inst- green is too organic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we answered um, that question. Solve that one. <laughs> uh, also, Bill Nye is the voice of the alien yeah. at the end of the movie. Which I definitely wanted to look up because I was like, "This has to be somebody," and uh, and it and it that you know marks the trilogy as well because Bill Nye has been in every Cornetto trilogy movie, which is important, guys. And so is Martin Freeman, and uh, a lot of these guys have been in all in all of the movies. Yeah, they um, got Bilbo Baggins early. Yeah, but his role is so small in Shaun of the Dead. He's literally at like one seed. Yeah, when they pass just, the other party. Yeah, where they just pass pass each other. Um, and man, Martin Freeman is so good at this movie. He just nails it. Just a great job. Um, but yeah, there's. I think that there's a lot of things here. You know, this movie deals a lot with freedom. And kind of the freedom to mess up is like the thing that we hold most dear in this world is like we have the freedom to screw up in whichever way we want to screw up so we can be you know like peter's character and screw up by going the safest possible route we can screw up in gary's sense and completely throw our lives away we can uh screw up in andy's sense and and seem to have it all but actually have it kind of falling apart around you but but you know what we're the human race and we don't like to be told what to do that's that's the basis of this thing. Um, and I think they do a great job at kind of illustrating that in that being adult is coming to grips with the screw-ups that you have and ultimately accepting them as part of your life story. Because once they get through it, once they get through this, uh, this apocalyptic event, they all kind of become fully realized in a way, the ones that 
the ones that uh, that survive it. Although I got you got to love Old Man's character with the with the soccer ball for a head. Yeah, half Wilson head. <laughs> so good. Oh man! And apparently, and I think that's the contrast at the end a little bit with mm-hmm. the blanks that still exist versus the people who survived. Yeah, there are people who are satisfied with what might seem mundane mm-hmm. to others, and that's okay that you can coexist in a sense (laughs) yeah you also have the freedom to be boring yeah but there's a i agree that the the film the thematic the theme of you're allowed to screw up there's an authenticity there that i think is what makes childhood so awesome and why we're so nostalgic for as you look back and you're like i screwed up and i was better for it yeah. And when you get older, just the margin of error gets small. <laughs> it feels smaller. It does. It feels so sm- so much smaller, and that and that gives you so much stress. It's like a basis of so much of your stress is that your margin of error gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That's why you know. That's why old people are like so carefree because they're like. I feel like I feel like there's a, there's some point in your life where the release valve opens and you're like yeah fuck it we're just you're on the <laughs> other side of yeah others. well and you know when you're if you're somebody who has kids you know think about I keep thinking about it because I'm like a week away yeah and I remember when I was in my twenties like thanking my parents for <laughs> for twenty years just doing everything that I wanted to do yeah and it's cool to see them now not. To be able to, you know, they want to do a big road trip and everything. And and it's cool that, you know, you come back around at mm-hmm. some point where you can kind of do what you want and have fun. You're free to do what you want to do and get loaded <laughs> and have a good time. <laughs> and that's that, buddy. So that's the world's end. Um, and that's Edgar Wright. Uh, so we'll do a wrap-up cast for Edgar Wright, a little short one. We'll rank the films, and we'll uh, reveal the next directors that we will cover on direct. There will be a break between Edgar Wright and our next director so that Levi can expand his family and his consciousness, maybe, or his, <laughs> his understanding of, of life as it is. So uh, we'll be back next time with the Edgar Wright wrap-up cast. And until then, oh, also, uh, sorry, got to mention the forums, forums.ballmove.com. Go there, give us your feedback, tell us what you liked about Edgar Wright and, and how you experienced the journey. Also send us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Eric. And I'm the only Levi. <laughs> Cut. <laughs>